Well, hello there, gang. Luke Thomas here. It is the Promotional Practice Live Chat on MMAfighting.com. I am the site's senior editor, and today is January 20th, a Wednesday, of course. Uh, we're a little later than usual because of the UFC 197 press conference, and the year is uh, 2016. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for accommodating your schedules. For those of you watching live, and if you're catching it later, I still appreciate the patronage just the same. Um, today on the live chat, we will get to... Let's see. Uh, obviously, this UFC 197 press conference will react to that. Some of the things said in there, um, if you want to do that. And I think, secondly, or however much is, it's a priority to you, um, there's still some Cruz Dillashaw fallout talking about who won, why, uh, more issues with the 10-point must system, and so on and so forth. So um, those are up for grabs. Anything else that's really on your mind, best place to contribute, of course, is going to be on MMAfighting.com's comment section. And comments that turn green get priority, but not exclusivity. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Please give it a like, share it around, do the whole bit. And uh, I got a new diet soda today, which I know you're all very excited about. Not really. Um, this is courtesy of uh, Hunter, who's on our staff, who sent these to me. I paid him back. Um, you can't get these anymore. Look what I have today. I'm very excited about this. I have Diet Mountain Dew, code red. You can get Diet Mountain Dew. I can. I think they discontinued Diet Mountain Dew Code Red, and I have it today with a rush. I don't know if you can see that. It says with a rush of cherry flavor. So look at that. He sent me a whole case. I've had two of them. This is the second one. Let's try this sucker out. Oh, that is heaven. That is pure bliss. This is what McGregor must feel like after like KO and Jose Aldo. It's like, ah, how satisfying. I love Code Red. I can't drink it because it's full of soda, or excuse me, full of sugar. And so I uh, haven't had it in a long time. So having the diet version, while equally unhealthy, nevertheless makes me feel better. Uh, okay. Without further ado, let's get to some of these questions if we can and uh, get this chat kicked off. Again, thank you so much for contributing and being here today. Let us do this. All right, first question, of course. MMA scoring, and I'll go to the bottom to get some of these 197 questions if you have them. Uh, MMA scoring, I asked a question last week about scoring. You suggested it was too, I'm not sure what this word is. Given that it's still a hot topic, how difficult Dillashaw Cruz was to judge, I shall simply and pose it again. Okay, uh, excuse me, I shall simplify and pose it again. What are the pros and cons of the following MMA scoring system? Oh, Jesus, it is still too long. Um. Open scoring used by Pancrase, unlimited point system used by Road FC, and then the global rule set used by One. Um, open scoring uh, ultimately, I believe, does not work. I think there are circumstances where it can propel people to better action, but it would have just as many, if not more, situations where folks would be willing to coast. I think that is hugely problematic as a consequence um, and would ultimately change strategy in a way that I wouldn't be comfortable with. The global rule set as used by One, I, I like a lot. I think it actually is better for um, less qualified judges. It doesn't uh, uh, handicap them in the way that the 10-point must system does. But what you should also understand about this system by one, we haven't really seen that used in the modern era. They use obviously a very similar system in Pride, uh, even judging the fight as a whole as opposed to round by round. But um, I really believe there might be a – I don't know this to be true, but – I would just caution that when you see one used, you're seeing one used on one fights. 
which is to say low-level fights where there is often savagery in one direction. It's not, I mean, there are close fights, don't misunderstand me, but it's a lot of lopsided fights too. Uh, it's more lopsided fights in one than you'll get in the UFC, many more. Um, the game, the MMA, if you go to a regional show, if you go to a local show, you'll see that the card is stacked with more fights than normal. It is not uncommon to go to an amateur show and see between 15, 18 fights. That, that, is, that is not unheard of at all. And the reason why they do that is because often guys at this level, they crumble quickly. They make big mistakes that are easy to capitalize on. And so they have to fill a card up with many more fights to keep the same amount of entertainment being given. Um, you know, Certainly, I would not compare one to the amateur level, but relative to the difference it, it has um, with the highest level in the UFC, I wonder how that would affect how we feel about major championship fights, about whether that would really solve the controversy problem. Again, here's the key to understanding all of this. And the Road FC system, I don't think, would work for a high-level MMA anyway. But the key to, to all of this, again, you can have all your views about the global rule set, about the unified rules, about open scoring, about whatever kind of idea you have, the half-point system. Nobody has any data to prove anything else works better. I am willing to believe you in theory, if you are a strong advocate for the global rule set, that that might be better. Many of the th arguments that the global rule set uh, acolytes push intuitively sound very correct. We do not have data on it. We don't. We simply don't. As it relates to the highest level, we don't. About what it would change in terms of perception, about to what extent it would enable mediocre judges to make better decisions, about to what extent it would not do that, it would have no impact at all, about whether there would really be any kind of more than negligible difference between that and the 10-point must. Um, we, we, we need a couple of years of data about this. Here's the part uh, that's interesting to me about this. You know, If USC was really interested in this, and it doesn't seem, doesn't seem that they are, but let's say that they were, if they hold fights overseas, well, not even overseas, just anywhere. You could judge the fight normally, but then you could pay for your own purpose of gathering data about just pay three judges in the back who aren't working that night to then judge all the fights using the global rule set and do this for all of your events over the course of a year. And then let's look at that data. When we look at that data, that's the beginning of the conversation right there. Not the end of it, the beginning. What we're doing right now is just baseless baselessly speculating and i'm really unwilling to do that let's drop down to the very very bottom see if we have any 197 presser questions i'd be a little more interested in getting to that considering we're just coming off of that so it says pineapple crush ever tried it i have not uh so it says rda looked irritated to the point of psychosis has conor mcgregor done his job already i would agree that he looked irritated i think arguing to the point of psychosis is going a little far um but yes he did look irritated so it says, I can't wait to see Holly and Mish fight. His words, not mine. Two amazing female athletes at the highest pinnacle of mixed martial arts who just happen to have iron jaws and wills. Who wins? Man, it's a tough one. Um, I would favor home early, but uh, as you know in these chats, I reserve my right to change my pick um, until the very end. Let me say this about Conor McGregor. Hello, I don't know what happened over the course of since the Aldo fight, I am going to, I doubt I'll change my perception on this. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. It's fine. I really don't care. Uh, I am going to, I'm going to just declare it now. I'm going to pick Dos Anjos, excuse me. I'm going to pick McGregor over Dos Anjos. And I was sort of thinking about this and I made the argument last week that, you know, to the extent that McGregor is operating within the, the long extension um, and even really the, the, 
you know, his boxing range is not just in, is just not just one phase. It's that phase itself is is a lengthy amount of real estate um, in front of him, right? Because he has short punches too, not just long punches at the end. To the extent the fight takes place there, it's only a matter of time before it ends. And I was thinking about this. So I was like, well, what about the vaunted ground game? It is true that I think that that. Um, if Dos Anjos is disciplined, he will get McGregor to the floor a few times, pass guard, maybe, maybe even mount, you know, um, because he is good in that way. He has a great level change. He's got a really athletic, strong, explosive shot. Um, it's good. It's well-timed. Um, he does have a good chin in case he eats one on the way in, uh, and, he, and he's strong and quick. So I think that, I don't, I don't think that's crazy at all to think he can get those. But if you look at Dos Anjos' career, he has two submission wins in the UFC. And I went back and I watched both fights today in preparation for this chat. Um, and the Terry Adam, he had an arm bar on him, and then he had a rear naked choke on Kamal Shalarus. First of all, neither of those guys are in the UFC anymore, um, and uh, certainly are at one point in their lives, were very capable fighters, but it's not like he subbed any A-list fighter ever. That's the first thing to consider. Second of all, in the Kamal Shalarus fight, it was a nice finish, but it was set up with a head kick. In other words, he rocked him really badly and then jumped on his back, and, and he had a nice finish. He used the old BJ pen. I'm going to use one leg to block one of your arms and get the rear naked choke. Um, so I, I don't want to discount it, but it wasn't a methodical jujitsu uh, overwhelming attack. Now, that was the case in the Terry Adam fight. The Terry Adam fight, he was able to pass the side control. He would attempt to pass. Mark Goddard, not one of his better refing performances. This is UFC 112, I believe. And um, he goes to Neon Belly a number of times, eventually takes him out, and then uh, collects an arm bar and, and sits for it. And once he sits for it, he gets it pretty cleanly. But um, it took him a little while to do that, and that's Terry Adam. Terry Adam does not have jiu-jitsu as good as... Uh, Dos Anjos. Dos Anjos' major improvement has been in the striking and in the in-between game, um, the wrestling shots, the transitions, the scrambling. So for me, Conor McGregor showed to me that he doesn't have really a lot of offensive ability off of his back. I mean, I don't think he has a, you know, nothing, but he doesn't have much. But he's got good patience. He's got good control. He's got a good chin. He can find his way back to his feet. And so for me... Dos Anjos is, I mean, he's decisioning guys over and over and over and over again. You know, yes, he knocked out Benson Henderson. That's true. It was semi-flash-ish, um, but really against the the many of the other guys. I mean, let me look at his record here. I think I have it pulled up still. You know, listen to how many guys he's decisioned. Uh, Kyle Bradley, Rob Emerson. Anthony Andrew Kawani, Mark Bocek, Evan Dunham, Donald Cerrone the first time. And then he stopped Jason High, and he stopped Benson Henderson, and then Nate Diaz Pettis, and then he stopped Cerrone. So he's had more stoppages through strikes than anything else, and that's just not an area where I think he's going to have a lot of success against Conor McGregor. So for me, um, in just trying to evaluate this honestly, I, I, I give McGregor an excellent chance. Now, the welterweight thing seems crazy. Not as crazy as it did before, but certainly still fairly remote, but... Um, I don't really think it's all that crazy that he will take the 155-pound strap. Uh, if, if I'm wrong and he goes in there and gets bulldozed, so be it. Won't be the first time, certainly won't be the last. But, uh, yeah, I like McGregor in that fight in a way that I'm much more comfortable with this, having seen his progression, having seen the Jose Aldo fight, just 13 seconds of it, admittedly. Um, I, I like his chances. I, I, I don't know how else to say it. Let's see what else we got going on here. Um Given that this is only the first press conference and Connor had mentioned that they will be doing a small media tour, 
Do you think Dos Anjos will allow emotions to get in the way of the fight, much like Aldo did? Or do you believe that Dos Anjos is too mentally strong for that? I don't know. We'll see. Um, he won't have nearly as much to deal with as Jose Aldo did, not even close to have as much. Um, so I'm sure he'll be a little bit annoyed. But um, yeah, he looked annoyed. I mean, wouldn't you be annoyed if you were essentially being, I mean, telling someone that they turn their back on their own is essentially saying um, you're not allowed to be an immigrant in the United States, uh, which is hilarious for someone who has left Ireland to make all of his money here. I mean, he may take some of it back to Ireland, spends a good portion of it here, um, and collects a good portion of it here too. So, you know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, he's collected far more from American consumers than Dos Anjos has. That's, that's pretty clear. And at least Dos Anjos pays back into taxes. So, you know, that argument to me is uh, borderline offensive. Uh, and I only say that because my mother was an immigrant. So I have a little soft spot for it. You might not. You may say it's all games, and it is all games. I understand that. In the end of the day, does he really believe something like that? Probably not. But um, it is a gross, uh, an awful thing to say to someone. So I can imagine that they would feel that way. Certainly it makes my skin crawl when people... Um, you know, are mad at immigrants for being immigrants. Even when, in the case of Dos Anjos, um, he's so, somebody like Dos Anjos who uh, makes money, puts his kids through school, uh, contributes to taxes, lives in a community, brings with him culture from a, another place. You know, Dos Anjos should be rewarded and applauded for making America better. Um, and I do. I applaud all immigrants, uh, for, you know, in the, well, it's ones that live in the lives of Dos Anjos. Um, he is somebody that makes the country better. And that's not a fight that, that I suppose McGregor cares about making America better, but he sure does love American dollars, doesn't he? So that argument's kind of ridiculous, but, um, be that as it may, uh, it may just be games and whatever he says, there'll just be less of it in the end. Again, guys, I, I, I don't think that will matter. Um, in the case of Aldo, you could argue maybe it mattered more than I had initially anticipated. With this one, though, I I just don't like his chances, even if he was zenned out and calm. Uh, I just think there's he rel- he needs too much time, and all McGregor needs is all the time you can give him. Um, and that's a bad matchup for Dos Anjos, I think. Uh, let's see. Any more presser questions? Let's see. All right. People want it to be unblocked. I will block you quick on. Uh, I'll answer this and I'll jump back up to the top. As an international fan of MMA, I have no real understanding of collegiate high school wrestling divisions, particularly labels like All-American and what that translates to in terms of skill. Goldberg often likes to remind us that someone who's a Division I All-American, that a guy's Division Three, whatever. This essentially means nothing to anyone outside of North America. Can you give a quick explanation of what those means and, if possible, what it actually translates to in terms of relative skill? Um, division, there's three divisions. Well, there's more than that because you can you can get Division I AA and stuff like that. But just for the purpose of this conversation... 
Um, if your child is a stud in the United States, male or female, they may get recruited to go and play a sport at a Division One program. A Division One program um, is the most elite you can find. So if you played American football, you would see who the who are the most recent national champions. University of Alabama, coached by Nick Saban. That's a Division One program. The chances of your kid getting that scholarship is incredibly rare, but it does happen, of course, for the very elite. And many of those elite go on to play in the NFL. But there are many, many Division One schools. There's Division Two and Division Three. Now, in a game like football, there's a major difference between Division One, Division Two, and Division Three. Um, in wrestling, there's not necessarily as much. You can get guys who are very good in Division Two and Division Three. Guys who are good in Division Two and Division Three then adapt really well to freestyle rules, um, more so than some of the folk style guys that come out of the collegiate style. Uh, even from Division One programs. Um, an All-American is someone who places his top eight in their division, uh, unless I'm mistaken about that. So if you go to the national tournament and you place inside the top eight, that labels you an All-American. That means in your weight class, in a given scholastic year, you were one of the eight best in that division nationwide. Let me tell you something. It is a very, very difficult thing to achieve. So when you see guys who are two or three-time All-Americans, you know, national runner-up, I mean, you competed for a national title, you maybe lost in the finals, a la Bellator's Chris Honeycutt. I think he was a two or three time division one wrestler out of Edinburgh. I mean, these are, you know, let me just say something. When one of those guys comes to your gym, you feel it right away, right away. There's a difference with how they lock up with you. There's a difference about their speed and their balance and their explosion and everything else about them. Those are very, very, very high level athletes who are very, very credentialed. So that's what that means. And understand who are the very best of division one. They go on, typically, although not always, someone like Henry Cejudo, for example, didn't even wrestle in college, which is his own little achievement. Uh, but the best of Division One typically go on to do some of the freestyle. So you see guys like Kyle Dake, Jordan Burroughs. Uh, these are all 74 kilos, although now 86 kilos, I believe, for Kyle Dake, David Taylor, um, you know, guys like that. So, again, with wrestling, it's the, the, the line between them is a little bit more blurred. But in something like, you know, American basketball, well, basketball generally, but American football. Um, if you're Division One, you're Kentucky or Duke. You know, you're one of the best players in the country, and by extension, um, you know, one of the best younger developing players in the world. All right, let's go back to the top here, if we can, for just a second. Luke, how do you think your gut will feel when we are five minutes from RDA versus Connor walking to the cage? I know you talked about it before, getting nervous when it's a big fight. Um, for this one, I don't feel the same about Jose Aldo as I do with this one. I'm telling you, you guys, I have a high threshold for skepticism. I don't know. Something changed in that Aldo fight. And if you're one of the people who thought he was going to beat Aldo, but you don't think he's going to beat RDA, that's fine too. I understand your point completely. I I, I could be wrong. I mean, look, I don't know what's going to happen on March 5th. I really don't know. Dosan just could completely surprise me. But I feel differently about this one. I feel that McGregor, um, I like his chances a lot more here than people realize. Dos Anjos is going to have a very hard time putting him away. Connor takes a hell of a shot, and he's got good uh, submission defense enough to keep the fight alive. You mean to tell me that someone who is a bit of a decision guy, not not a, not a decision guy outright, but a bit of a decision guy in 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 uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, um, you mean to tell me he's going to have a hard time putting someone like Connor McGregor away and expects to 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 live through twenty five minutes? I don't, I don't like his chances at all. True false. Habib versus Alvarez happens next for both guys. I certainly hope so. I think that'd be a good a good comeback fight for Nurmagomedov. Gamedov. Uh, Tony Pettis takes an extended layoff despite wanting to book a real fight soon. False. 
Frankie Edgar takes a fight in the interim, maybe versus Aldo. I'll say false, but who knows? UFC 197 will be bigger and badder than 200. False. Bader pulls off an upset versus Rumble. Also false. Aljamain Sterling doesn't re-sign with UFC. I'll say false. And then Cyborg versus Home happens before Home versus Rousey 2. I will also say false to that. Do you think the Eagle is too reckless in his approach of closing the distance? You guys know I am because I've already talked about that. And thus lets him get knocked out by Connor, or is a Sambo too good to not get into the pocket to make Connor fly and man, get manhandled? I think uh, it's, again, two problems there. One is that Habib will get picked off at range. I mean, maybe not every single time, right? Might be like three times in a row where he beats Connor to the punch and then gets in there and ragdolls him to the ground. That, that would not surprise me at all. The question is not every single time do you get caught. You only have to be make a mistake once with Connor. That's it. He has the power that once it clicks with that punch, problems begin for you. You make bad decisions. And once you make bad decisions, he's able to make even better decisions, right? So um, it's not just that. It's another guy in Habib who has trouble finishing guys. You know, I mean, yes, you can keep McGregor down, maybe steal a couple of rounds from him even if you're Nurmagomedov. But if he doesn't fix that closing the distance issue, he's going to get he's going to get chewed up too. And I like Nurmagomedov too, man. But I'm telling you this, something about McGregor at lightweight feels, feels way – he's a much bigger threat there than at 145. 145, he's depleted. Those guys have better speed in certain cases. And so he has good speed uh, and good accuracy, and that makes it for a lot. But I don't know that he's naturally the fastest guy at featherweight. Um, I think he's going to be real fast at uh, 155 um, and full of energy. So he's going to be a problem. Good question. Uh, Florian's plagiarism. Uh, although you write, you wrote plagiarism. Florian has apologized, explained, and owned his wrongdoing. Should his suspension from Fox be a lengthy one? If you were the Fox person in charge of this, um, how would you punish Kenny? So he was on his podcast yesterday with um, John Anik. Let me see here. Okay. With John Anik. And um, Look, I'll say this about Kenny Florian. Uh, I have, uh, I mean, we're not friends or anything, but I've known him for a long time. I've interviewed him maybe close to 20 times, if not more than that. Seen him at events, talked to him a thousand times. Never got the sense that he wasn't hardworking. Never got the sense that he was some sort of fraud. Never got the sense that he was trying to be something that he wasn't. Never once. Um, his explanation was that he took notes and that he thought those notes he took were his writing. So when he put it in there, he didn't think twice. Look, I'll just say this. I'm going to give him the benefit of the, of the doubt because heretofore I have never had any reason to otherwise speculate or suspect that um, whatever his analysis was, good, bad, or indifferent, that it wasn't his. I, I often thought he had a bit of a signature to it. And there's been moments where he was brave about his own analysis, I think, in critiquing Josh Barnett and some of his affliction fights and Barnett lashing out at him. You know, he stayed the course, Kenny Florian did. And again, I... Uh, He's been ethical in every kind of other way. I've had the opportunity to observe. This seems very out of character. Um, so I will give him the benefit of the doubt, which is to say, um, even if his explanation is true, at best, it is outrageously negligent, outrageously negligent, really colossal F up. 
you cannot take notes that are basically someone else's words partially cribbed you know and write them as your own even if you think like you can't take your your um research itself needs a little bit of craftsmanship to do what he did is incredibly lazy even if it's an honest mistake it's still lazy it means the way in which you take your notes sucks that's what that means and if you can't decipher someone else's language slightly amended in yours there's a problem there you know so um if that's the case then that's the case and again I don't have any reason to suspect anything else has been done along these lines. There hasn't been any real evidence presented as such, which is not the case with any many other serial plagiarizers. But even if that explanation is true, and I'll, and I'll believe it because I have no reason to not believe it, um, given the rest of his track record, it is still, boy, if that's your explanation, that's not a good one. It's Maybe it's true, but it's not a good one. Um. I, I know what I sound like and I know what someone else sounds like. And I've never, I've never been confused about that. I've never written something and thought this was someone else's and I've never read someone else's and thought this, it doesn't, uh, maybe it doesn't write enough. Maybe he was in a hurry. You know, and there's a, and there's uh, the reason I can believe him or at least give him the benefit of the doubt, even if it is a crappy explanation or at least a crappy actually thing that happened. Right. I had a buddy of mine in college who was Phi Beta Kappa. I lived with him my fresh, excuse me, my sophomore and uh, junior year. And I remember my senior year, he called me up and he was like, "I got a really big problem. I need you to help me." And I said, "Okay." And he goes, um, "I need you to, I need you to testify on my behalf before the Honor Council." He had a paper that was due in a anthropology class. He was simply finishing as a measure of a requirement to graduate. And um, he was out of time and he panicked and he lifted a paragraph from a book he was reading and the teacher knew the author of the book, the professor did, caught it and then caught him. So what he did before the honor council was essentially just admit those facts that look, look at my record. Um, you know, no one has ever accused me of this. My work's been exemplary. I just panicked because I was running short on time and I wanted to get an A in the class so I can graduate Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, and that was that. And I think they let him off, um, without a suspension or expulsion, but they gave him, I think an automatic F in the class or something, or maybe like a D whatever the case, it, it killed his opportunity to be five bit of Kappa, but he did graduate on time. I think he graduated like a three, nine, five or something, you know, um, in any case, he, he actually is now a lawyer for a major tech company out in san francisco so he wound up being a big success but all, I, all i'm pointing out to say is i knew this guy to be one of integrity i knew this guy i, I saw the long hours he would put into um studying I, I i i trusted him completely and i trusted the explanation completely but his explanation to me makes a lot more sense than i wrote down notes that look a lot like someone else's words and i thought they were my words your note taking must be atrocious you know your your research methods must be unbelievably sloppy, but maybe so. Probably so. I, I don't, and no, I don't, I am not interested in calling for Kenny Florian's job at all. You know, I don't think what he did is so consequential. If what he says is true, that it merits being let go of a job. I think he's got a big career. I would hate to see his career derailed for this. Um, I do think he's a good guy. And, uh, and that's that.
Vitor versus Jacare. Luke, does this in effect mean that Rockhold Wyman is guaranteed? How do you see the aforementioned fight playing out? Um, I thought that this might actually mean that Silva versus Bisping was getting some play as well, but certainly Rockhold versus Weidman rematch. How, how, however little I have any interest in seeing that um, might be back. But And how I see it playing out, I see Jacare taking him down like Weidman did and passing and um, finishing from, from there. If, if Jacare doesn't get lit up early, should be able to get a takedown, no problem. Pass, no problem, and and that's everything. I, I, I'm not the Vitor Jacare fight doesn't interest me much, unless Vitor wins. If he wins, that makes it kind of interesting because then you can make the Rockhold fight pretty easily, right? So, ah, uh, just satisfaction if it can, man. BJ Penn versus Connor. Jesus, please God, no. BJ Penn returns to action, having taken his training seriously, mentally, and physically for the first time in many years at Jackson Winks camp. After a couple of wins, do you think we'll see BJ versus Connor at the end of the year, early 2017? Jesus Christ. I don't think so, because I don't think he's going to get those wins. But um, I am so uninterested in the return of BJ Penn. It is like dead on arrival for me. Um, look, I, I, I say this all the time. I, I cannot predict the future. Neither can you. Really, none of us can. We can make educated guesses about what might happen. I'll say this: um, I don't. Th- I've mentioned this before. I don't think that the the pen turnaround with Jackson is analogous to the Arlovsky one one to one. Arlovsky was thirty when that happened. He was able to take really lesser fights and build himself back up as he retooled his game to an extent. Um, and ultimately, his inability to take punishment reared its head again against someone like Stephen Miocic. You know, I don't think he has a bad ability to take punishment, but he doesn't have that chin that he needs um, to withstand that kind of thing either. Penn is 37 years old. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I've never been an elite athlete, but you kind of are who you are by 37 years old. If at 37 years old, you're like, okay, I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to do it. It's too late. It's too late. You know, he's one of these guys who's super talented. And I, I, I can't say that things will go poorly. I think there's a range of possibilities of things that could happen. Uh, a lot of them negative, some of them positive, very few of them, but some of them also very, very positive that, that could happen. There's a good number of ways that this could go. And I can't say with any certainty one is more likely than the other, although I have certain suspicions. My guess is maybe he can get one, maybe two wins, um, maybe more. I don't think so. I think he's going to find difficulty early and often. Um, I think he's kind of set in his ways. And I, I know for a fact his ability to take a take punishment has been compromised from what it used to be, which was part of his ability to to persevere. You know, BJ Penn is like McGregor in a way where um, Penn has been told often he can't do certain things. And then he would go and do it. You should have seen the buildup to the initial Matt Hughes fight. People thought Penn was crazy for wanting to go up there and, and do that. Everyone thought he was going to get wrecked. And then he goes and does what he does. So certainly Penn ha- is not unaccustomed to uh, people limiting the scope of what he's capable of. Right? Okay. That's fine. I- again, I'm not guaranteeing this will crash and burn. There are some reasons to think some of this could go okay. But... Um, I guess here's the point. These re- these retirements, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about this on the MMA beat tomorrow, uh, 
these retirements never actually seem like retirements. And it's not just Penn, it's many, many boxers. I think what winds up happening is that a lot of these guys, they wind up getting in a certain routine. They have a certain amount of people around them, a certain amount of business and personal relationships, a certain set of way of training, a certain set of expectation about what they can and can't do. And things just pile on top of each other in that system before they say, I can't do this anymore. And then with the passage of time, some of those relationships break away. Some of those bad habits break away. Certainly their bodies get healed a little bit because they're not under the same kind of duress. And then the decision-making skills begin to change, right? And sometimes some of these guys are able to make the adjustments in that space so that when they have these second or third chapters, they don't go as poorly um, as they could or as poorly as things were going when they called it quits. So all these retirements, the Penn retirement, for example, the GSP retirement, they all seem very conditional. You know, they all seem very conditional. It's more, it's much more a pause than a, than a goodbye. But to me, there's also just this unmistakable whiff of desperation in Penn's um, comeback attempt. And I hate to say that because um, the current sign-off on my radio show on Sirius XM is a BJ Penn quote. The way I end every show is a BJ Penn quote. That's, that's the truth. He was, when I was a fan, my very favorite fighter. He was the first super fighter in my view, you know? Um, and again, I, I, I cannot sit here and honestly tell you that things will go as poorly as I think they will. Um, they could go significantly better, but all things being equal, I don't think that they will. And more importantly, even if they go um, moderately well, I think he will get absolutely chewed to pieces by anyone at the top of that division, which I have no interest in seeing. Who knows what kind of accumulated brain damage he has, although probably not as much as others. Certainly not something that I'm ready to just suggest is insignificant to the point of non-existent. Um, and I have to say that there's something promotionally that just feels... It's, it's, it's not like getting the band back together and playing the old hits. You get to play the hits once in this sport, or at least for one chunk of time. You know, if he was coming back to Bellator and finding people that were way worse than him, I don't know that I would love it, but I wouldn't hate it as much. But in the UFC, and this is my problem with the CM Punk thing and everything else that they do that really skirts the lines, I'm not interested in the UFC being a place where pro wrestlers can come and have a Make-A-Wish Foundation fight. I'm not interested in the UFC being a place where guys who, who went out of the game on their hands and knees trying to recapture lost glory because they have a certain measure of regret about how things ended. I'm not interested in that. Either you are competitive in this sport or you're really not. If you're in the UFC, the UFC is different than it used to be. It is, it is, it is a shark tank. Either you can swim with them or you can't. And if you can't, I, I, I don't have personally, and you may feel very different, Personally, my interest in seeing him compete against guys he would have thrashed a generation ago, or you know, guys like that a generation ago, it doesn't do it doesn't do a thing for me. And again, passions die hard for these guys. You know, UFC could certainly use him to headline a show and or co-headline a show or go to Hawaii or whatever the case. And maybe he gets three wins, maybe he gets five wins. I don't know. Um, I just find the prospect of finding what he thinks is lost very unlikely. I think he's much more set in his ways than even he's willing to admit. And um, while I hope it goes as well as he thinks it's going to, um, I would be very, very cautious about looking at this effort as one of um, where real rejuvenation, both either spiritually or professionally, is possible. 
And that's just, I don't expect you to agree if you don't want to agree, but that's kind of how I feel about it. Let's see, if we start at 315, we will go to 445. Isn't that right? All right, just making sure. Eddie Alvarez and Octagon Control. Luke, I need some help. Well, I'm here. I am failing to understand why Alvarez won any of the three rounds against Pettis, even the third. His win is based off the concept of octagon control, but if you look at the numbers, it reveals a different picture. Alvarez landed only three significant strikes on the ground and only three in the clinch. Meanwhile, Pettis landed zero on the ground and six in the clinch. They had the same amount of percentage strikes, according to fight metric. Excuse me, they had the same amount of high percentage strikes. So what was the point of cage control? It didn't provide him with more offense, and it didn't limit Pettis' offense in the way um, the back control or mount does. All it did was slow the pace of the fight with no exciting top control jiu-jitsu or striking, which is harmful for a TV broadcast, TV-based broadcast. Look, I watched the MMA. I know you spoke about the Monday morning analyst, and I know you spoke about Pettis needing to create separation for stuffing the cage takedowns, but that doesn't mean he should lose the fight. So I guess what I'm asking is, should we reevaluate the importance of cage control in scoring fights because the numbers don't ascribe any importance? Cage control does not mean how do you operate in a space where your back is against the cage or you are pressing someone into a cage. It means given the space we are in, who is using it to their advantage the most? Who is making advantage of it? Who is, who is defining the physical terms of the real estate? So just so we're clear about what cage control is. Um, I agree with you. I had Pettis winning that fight two rounds to uh, one. I think the first and second round I gave to him, I did give him the third. Let me look up some of these stats here for just a second because I recall there being a number of takedowns um, in that third round that is probably worth taking a look at here. Let's see, per round. Round three, Pettis landed 20 of 31 significant strikes. Alvarez landed 22. Um, both landed 13 to the head. Alvarez, six to the body. Both landed three to the leg, and then landed 18 from distance. Pettis had one more in the clinch, uh, and then Alvarez had three of four land on the ground. Let's see the... Yeah, but he had three takedowns in that third round, so that matters more. It was those takedowns that did the difference. Um, so, look, I agree with you. Uh, Shout-outs to Todd Martin of uh, SureDog, and I shared his article on it on my Facebook wall. I think I retweeted it, too. But in any case, he essentially argues what you're arguing, that if you're just grinding a fight to a halt, we should stop rewarding these kinds of fighters. And certainly I agree with that. I would not argue uh, with that at all. I I, I I second it completely. But if we're speaking about the state of judging today and why it's still problematic, um, even if I think that Pettis should be able to create separation, I talked about this before, if you're just stuffing the takedown only to the point where your back is still against the cage, you haven't really stuffed it. You sort of stuffed it in slow motion, and it's it, it has stalemated. Um and there was a call I thought for the referee to be a little more involved in that space. So all those things are fine, but to me, that's not... People are talking about this like that's the only issue Pettis had in this fight. Robin Black was on the Monday Morning Analyst, and he said that, you know, it looked like that Pettis maybe wasn't taking training as seriously in terms of the overall output of it to 
physically mold his body in a way that you know let's just recognize he's doing the kind of work that um, he should be doing. Brian Stan on Anakin Florian's podcast, the one I just referenced, where Kenny Florian made those statements, said just as much that he he, he worded it differently. He said, you know, he's a little bit curious about what kind of strength and conditioning that Pettis is doing. So there's a lot of suspicion, it feels like, that Pettis physically did not look all that great here. Looked a little bit um, by prize fighting standards in the UFC lightweight division, a little thick around the middle. You know, and I don't want to be one of these guys who's policing bodies when, um, you know, maybe that's not the most relevant thing, but it seems kind of relevant because more than that, his he was flat-footed, um, you know, he was he was single shotting. There just wasn't a lot of dynamism to his game, which is usually the hallmark of it. I mean, I don't expect Anthony Pettis to fight like Dominic Cruz, uh, and Dominic Cruz has a bit of a wrestling background, although not a particularly distinguished one. And yet, look how hard it is—not merely to take him down, but to get his back against the cage and hold him there. I mean, it's impossible. So, what is the difference between what he's doing and Pettis? Well, probably a lot of things, but what I'm suggesting is. At this point in his career, after what happened with Guida and now Dos Anjos and now Alvarez, it's too late for him to be saying, um, and I'm sure he can make improvements with another camp with Izzy Martinez. I, I don't think that he's stuck necessarily, but it, it wasn't just the wrestling looked bad. The inability to create separation against the wall affected his ability to really unload on the feet. And maybe his physical conditioning did as well. It was It was a very... Anthony Pettis is much, much, much better than that. He's just much better than that. That is not the best he could fight. And even if not the best he could fight, I thought he won. I scored the fight for him. So I agree with you. But there's a bigger issue here about what is Anthony Pettis doing to get prepared for these fights and shore up these deficiencies. If you're going to let guys press you against the fence, you don't deserve to lose, but you're going to. Deserve or not deserve. This is the state of the world in which you are operating. Um, You can't rely on having competent judges in every UFC fight. You simply can't. It doesn't work that way. Not even Conor McGregor, who's in nothing but the highest profile main events. You know, if you're if you're thinking, um, you know, if I have a good judge, I can get this one out, you're in trouble already. You're in trouble already. So so to me, it's like, people are like, well, you know, I, I wrote on Twitter, I thought this was a devastating loss for him. I'm not saying it's not one he can't come back from. He's still young enough for that to happen. But to be this far in your MMA career, to now be that further back in the queue because your wrestling is still problematic, you know, you got to ask yourself some serious questions at that point. How old is Anthony Pettis? Let me dig this up for just a second. 28. So he's got some time. Like I said, it's not the end of the world, but it's still a pretty significant loss. You know, you lost to the former Bellator lightweight champion. Who saw that coming? And Alvarez is a very credentialed fighter. Don't get me wrong, but after the Don Cerrone loss, did you think that he had a chance to beat Anthony Pettis? I didn't. I wasn't sure that I did. And I, now I can't believe it. And again, I you know I scored the fight for Pettis, but even then, just barely. Um, he has issues that are that have held him back too many times. Too many times he has been. Uh, this has been a problem for him, and it has now cost him. Um, back-to-back losses um, and money, and now he has to climb back up the queue, and perhaps he will, but it's just another portion of the hole he has dug himself because you're waiting for judges that really understand how to judge. Well, bro, you're going to wait a long time for that. I really thought this was a uh, you know a bad performance by him. I did not think it was simply the wrestling. I did not think it was simply 
you know, um, inability to create separation. Everything in his game looked languid. Mm. Let's see. Dwayne Ludwig says he has done more for TJ Dillashaw than Faber ever has. Well, I, I, I mean, only they know what they're talking about here in terms of what he is or has not given. I, I wouldn't agree with that. I would, I, but, you know, I don't have to agree with that to still give guys their, their due. Um, the guys are team alpha male recruiting and, and molding TJ Dillashaw into something special, giving him a home to, to grow and build on his early strengths, I think was good for him. But it's also true that Dwayne Ludwig took his career to, I think, and, and his technical ability, his, his, that recent development he's had where he's become a very sophisticated striker. Um, I don't know that that happens without um, Dwayne Ludwig. I really don't. And so they have a very special bond. They're trying to milk and keep going and, and feed off one another. And, and so I think both guys have had dramatic impacts um, on TJ's career, maybe in the totality of things Faber more, but it doesn't really diminish Ludwig's contribution to say, well, Faber maybe has given more, especially in sort of the foundational sense. But, you know, the, the growth and development of Dillashaw's game is why he is such um, so unique among now, I guess, former alpha male uh, or any any kind of alpha male fighter, but more than that, that's that technical leap he took under the guidance of Ludwig is why he has um, separated himself from the pack. So, you know, I, I think putting him in a space to build off his existing, existing strengths, you know, that wrestle boxing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure his boxing was in strengths, but you know, in as much as he could use his wrestling first and then build his striking, Team Alpha Male is a great place for him to be. And then as his striking really began to have a life of its own and its own strength and its own dominance, um, I don't, I fundamentally don't believe he could have got that without Dwayne Ludwig. So all this argument about you, know, you got to stay with the people you know. Well, what if the people you know aren't good enough? Ever thought about that? <laughs> right, uh, and that's the situation I think he encountered. This is a bizarre question. Like, what would you watch? Never watch an MMA fight again and never knowing the results or cut off your left foot. You know, with prosthetics being the way they are, I guess I would lose a foot. After that's some small deal, but you know. What did you think of the refereeing during the Brown-Mitrion fight regarding eye pokes? What a... Uh, what an unbelievable turn of events this was Matt Mitrion 37 end of his UFC contract um, fighting his heart out and not keep being helped by the officiating crew in any capacity whatsoever really quite pathetic I, I it is one thing for me that the referee did not um, take a point I thought one was justified it is much more concerned to me that the referee felt the need to say nothing to my knowledge there is no point in that fight where the referee went over to Matt Mitrione and said, look, I know you're not intending to do it, but you're doing it. You need to stop. If you don't stop, I'm going to take a point. He said to him, nothing. Nothing. He said nothing at all. That is much more problematic to me. That the referee didn't even recognize those two events, the first and second eye poke. He never saw them 
uh, as any kind of individual fighter's responsibility to police. He saw it as the cost of doing business. That is that is problematic, is it not? And 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 dangerous. You know, you're. I mean, it hasn't happened yet. Thanks, sweet Jesus. But you know, are we that far away from someone's eye being completely dislodged on national television? I don't know that we are, or blinded permanently. Certainly hope not. Um, I I believe, and I mentioned this before. I do not understand why UFC couldn't put out on video because I would watch every last stinking one of them if they put it on YouTube. The referee before the fight going back there and saying, if you eye poke once, I will give you a warning. If you do it twice, I will take a point. Or this is your eye poke warning now. If you do it even one time, I'm going to take a point. That's a little harsh. I would give you a, a one warning, especially in the case of Brown, who did not appear intentional. But you got to get these guys to start doing closed palm pushaways, um, and they need to start teaching that. And that's hard to do. But I've seen guys, wrestling coaches. Now you don't like you know how you can push off the fence with your feet, but you can't put your toes and grip inside. So you can put your foot flat on the fence and drive yourself off. Let's say to escape side control, or something like that. But you can't put your toes and grip. Same with your hand. If you put your hand against it, now it looks like you know you'd be very diligent to show the referee you're not grabbing. But if you went like this and you just drove your fist into it, almost like you were doing a one-armed push-up into the fence, that's legal. So rather than guys grabbing the fence, we got to get them to start learning how to put their like almost a nubbed fist in the weight. Now, that doesn't provide you nearly the same kind of suction that grip would, but the grip is illegal. At least you're driving your weight into it. You're giving yourself some kind of um, you know surface upon which to balance. That needs to happen. So I think after the second eye poke, a point should have been taken. Um, after the first eye poke, he should have been explicitly warned on camera. Before the fight ever happened, we need to see those fighters being told by those referees that that's what's going to happen. I want to see how these referees, before the fight takes place, speak to the athletes. Because when you speak to the athlete, when you see Big John go back and he's talking to the athletes, what is he doing? He is not merely reminding them of their responsibility and the rules generally or his responsibility, he is essentially articulating his understanding of, of um, the way th- the system works. He is articulating his understanding of the fight game. He is articulating his understanding of the very deep nature of his responsibility to police the fight when it's required. And without that, we just feel like there's some guy, I mean, they're not plucking him out of the audience, but it doesn't feel like there's much more vetting than that. And I'm sure that there is. But the UFC really needs to, I, I would really, I mean, you know, I know they got a thousand things going on. That to me seems kind of critical at this point. Guys' careers are being affected by it. When you get to that stage, there's something needs to be done about it, some kind of um, exposure. You know, a lot of these commissions don't act until there is a light shone upon them. Virginia was that way after the Mike Easton versus BB debacle. Um, certainly Nevada was that way after the Nick Diaz blowback and many other commissions have been a little more proactive uh, to varying degrees. But it, the way the system works is these commissions are inner bureaucratic government bodies. But if there's enough media pressure on them, um, they will react. They will react at least a little bit. And the more that this process 
about the, how the referees interact with the fighters and demonstrate their co core competencies is shielded from us, the more the process becomes shielded from eventual, e e even if somewhat minor change. Lightweight title picture. If McGregor wins against Dos Anjos, could you see it happen that the UFC gives Nate Diaz the next title shot at lightweight? Yes, I could see that. If Dos Anjos wins, who would you see next for him? Most people talk about Eddie and Habib, but I would love to see Ferguson. I would hope it would be Ferguson too. And this commission adjusting weigh-in format for Bellator 150. What are your thoughts on this? If successful, it's something that we could see somewhere soon. So they're giving them, you have the option. You can, you can weigh in normally at the normal weigh-in time, say 3 or 4 p.m., or you can weigh in at a window six hours prior to that if you're already ready to cut you know, your major weight. Love it. I think it gives guys more time. They'll still have to show up to the uh, weigh-ins and you know, maybe, I think, pose down and take pictures, but they'll feel much better. They'll give them more time to hydrate in an era where, I mean, they can still use IVs, I think, in Bellator, but even then it just, it just gives them more time to get in there and um, feel better, and I'm all in favor of it. You know, if you're if you've cut your weight responsibly and you're ready to go in the morning, you can. If you need a little bit more time to cut your weight, you can. You can go at the normal a lot of time of four o'clock. Um, I love it. I love it. And uh, I think the Kansas Commission isn't that the one that's being. Let's see. Let's see. Yeah. It's Sean Wheelock is the director there, the former Bellator commissioner. So shouts to Sean Wheelock for the progressive forward thinking on these kinds of issues. Anytime a commission is going to experiment with adjusting the rules, I am going to cheer for them 99% of the time. I am certain there will be some circumstance where they will be experimenting in a way that I don't find responsible or ultimately helpful. But I, I love, I love when commissions get out there and say, let's have some people scoring in the back to see what it looks like. We won't take their scores as official, but we'll take a look at them and see what they mean, if anything. What if we have some weigh-ins earlier? What if we do um, drug testing differently? What if we do any kind of thing that makes the process run more smoothly, that makes more rational sense, that is a benefit to the fighters, that is a benefit to the sport, that is a, that is a demonstration of our uh, ability to be nimble and quick-thinking and forward-thinking in the way we run our business? When? Or you know our operations as a government entity. Any 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 time a government commission does that, we should be very supportive of them. Love the idea. What is happening with your wizards this season? Don't, don't get me started. Beal is just injured too much. Wall can only do so much by himself. Nene is a shell of himself. Kelly Oubre is coming along. Has a long way to go. Otto Porter, not that great. Otto, God, Georgetown grads are the worst in this town. They think Otto Porter walks on water. I'm like, mm, my man's kind of asleep at the wheel, actually. Luke, why no love for Deontay Wilder and his uh, Wilder, excuse me, and his fight this past weekend? I watched a lot of combat sports, and that was a K of epic proportions, no coverage. Um, trying to get him on my radio show for this Friday, so that's that's that. Second part was um, he was getting beat a little bit, but what I liked about the right hand that ultimately landed was he had lost the outside foot positioning and had brought his right hand across. We had talked about that. Who is the king of doing that on purpose? Roy Jones. Now, I don't think that um, Wilder is certainly in that ballpark, 
but he does have speed. He does have big power. He was facing a, a really wide looping punch, um, and it worked out in his favor. But it was kind of interesting to see that. He had clearly lost outside foot dominance, and he was able to sneak the punch across his body and, and absolutely to, to devastating effect. Let's see here. Someone goes, you were harsh on Connor. Now you're praising him as if KO power mental toughness is rare at 155. Um, if you're one of these people who can't understand the logic of someone who adjusts their opinion over time with, with additional evidence, I don't know what you want me to say. Um, I start from a skeptical position. I change that skeptical position to the extent there is contributing evidence that allows me to do that. Now we can debate the value of that evidence or to what extent we should change our opinion based on that evidence, but understand what the process is here. You know, I certainly do not compare myself to any kind of scientist, but insofar as I have a premise that I can either contribute evidence towards or against, and then draw a theory about that. Um, or, you know, I start with a hypothesis add evidence and then draw a larger theory from that. Then I will, if you're still in this, ballpark where you're having these outrageous levels of skepticism about conor mcgregor you're living in the past and i don't know what to tell you now if you're picking dos anjos you're not living in the past there might be any number of great reasons to pick him but all i can do is talk about how i feel and what i see and what i think is possible all i can do is cite the levels of evidence that i think are relevant and draw a conclusion from there if i'm drawing the wrong one then that's on me and it will always be on me to say that you can just watch Conor McGregor's career through the UFC and have the same opinion now as you did back before, you're a fool. And I, only a fool would do something like that. Only a fool. And I don't really want to be stuck in that position. If you would like to be stuck in that position, it is a free country. To favor or not to favor? Do you think that making a Cruz favor fight is a good move? Yeah, I love it. I think um, it's a fight where Cruz can look good, although that's not all necessarily what you want. But, you know, Dana White's seeming um, iciness to Cruz seems like this would be a good opportunity to rectify that. Um, potentially. Um, it's a fight you could sell. For the bantamweight division, still sets up the winner for a TJ Dillashaw fight. If you want to make one, yeah, I like it. I, I don't, I don't see any reason not to do it. All right, true or false for bantamweight? Faber fights Dillashaw next, not Cruz. False. Faber calls it a career with two within two fights of losing to Dillashaw or Cruz. Probably false. Michael McDonald fights a legit top 10 bantamweight next fight and gets crushed. I'll say false. Barrow still makes the move to featherweight. True. Chad Mendes comes down to bantamweight for his next fight. I'll say false, but maybe true. Frankie Edgar comes down to bantamweight if he loses to Connor by KO. Maybe. I'll say true just for fun. DJ, uh, his coach, uh, Mark Henry, called our radio show once saying he could easily fight a bantamweight. DJ does not come down to bantamweight ever again, but does do super fights at 130 pounds. False. Dillashaw has to win the interim belt before fighting Cruz again. Um, I mean, there is no interim belt, so false. 
A Sun Sal fights Dillashaw again, but never gets a title shot. True. Cote versus Diaz. Cote wants Diaz. If Cote is a big enough needle mover for the Diaz, is Cote a big enough needle mover to, for Diaz to take the fight? Um, probably not, but I wouldn't discount it. It probably is just available. It's going to be a function of who's available in the timeline when she wants to come back. What's the biggest fight they can make for the amount of money? It wasn't like you look like awful against Anderson Silva. Let's see. Talk more about BJ Penn return. In the last 15 months, every UFC, excuse me, in the last 15 months, every UFC title has changed hands except for men's flyweight. Do you think this is good for the sport and part of the reason the UFC had record revenue in 2015? What do you attribute this trend to? Um, I don't know that title changing of hands um, is, is why business has been big. Uh, the title has changed hands because um, sustained dominance in mixed martial arts is incredibly difficult to come by. They did big fights because they had big stars in, in interesting matchups um, or just big stars. That, that's, that's why they had big business. I don't think that you know title fights can do really well. You would point to, say, uh, the title fight that even wasn't on pay-per-view, the Cruz-Dillashaw fight, but that was heavily promoted by UFC um, being on NFL football. Um, all I'm trying to point out to you is that a, one of the key lessons that the UFC, I think, has begun to learn is that they don't put all their title fights on pay-per-view because even though it is a title fight, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to do big business. So certainly, you might have some bigger stars at that range of the sport, but they don't. it's not a record guarantee. There are other fights that can do better without that. Um, so all I'm pointing out to you is there are many reasons why they had a better 2015, but the title changing hands is a consequence of the a separate set of uh, events that have a partial, if non-correlating, overlap, too. Do you share Robin Black's impression that Pettis is not in the gym as much as he should be? I'll say this. He's not training in the way that I think he is capable of training. To be this, to be suffering from the chronic inability to um, stave off dogged wrestling is is so problematic for him. It's really problematic for him because it's not just a wrestling it affects. It affects every other portion of his game and um, really holds him back, and I find it very troubling. And, you know, be two fights down is not a great place in which to compete either for the former champion of all play, of all people. Future guests on Monday Morning Analyst. Luke, I love the inclusion of Robin Black on the Monday Morning Analyst. Any chance you could contact Jack Slack, BJJ Scout, or even Lee Wiley for future episodes? It was nice to see you have a counterfoil to bounce thoughts off of. Yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Um, most of those guys you mentioned don't ever go on camera. Um, so I don't know. I mean, Lee potentially, I suppose, but I think, man, I have struggled with that podcast so much in terms of what the format should be. Um, for this live chat, I've never had too much of an issue for my radio show. I've got, you know, segments down and for some reason that podcast has really, uh, it has been a very laborious process trying to segment it out in ways that made sense and were replicable at scale. 
I think what I might start doing is getting fighters to help me break down things um, rather than other analysts. I'm sure I'll have the analysts on on occasion, but I would like to speak to other fighters who maybe have no relationship between the two. So some guy, you know, you got Cruz and Dillashaw going on there and, you know, I, I interview someone like, I'm just throwing a name out there, like Dustin Poirier or something, right? And um, because I don't want to encroach on the territory of the technique talk either, well, it's a little more coaches than it is uh, active fighters, Dominic Cruz notwithstanding. So, yeah, I think you might see more guests on there, but I'm still trying to figure that out too. Uh, any advice or recommendations you might have are uh, are well taken. Let's see what else we got here. We got a thousand questions, man. Honors B game. How good is he if you deny him what he is best at? Jack Slack often writes about taking away the A game of an opponent, so he must fight on terms he is not comfortable with. As great as Connor is at ranged striking, what happens when that's taken away? So I don't think his B game is very offensive. Connor McGregor's A game is extremely offensive, particularly on the feet, right? His B game is very defensive, right? His B game is not, once you take him out of that, he, he has to go to, let's say, wrestling or jiu-jitsu, either on top or on bottom. I mean, he passed with a leg weave, then a Seavers guard, but or you know, it wasn't a guard. He just passed um, using the leg weave into mount. But, um, you know, generally speaking, it's not a particularly sophisticated game. It's very defensively shelled. It's designed to control and wait and find openings um, and then bring the fight back to the A-game scenario. And the reason why is because he is devastating and very short amounts of time in the A game. It's not like in the A game, he has to sit there and put in rounds slowly and chip away at people. He has fight-altering power with a single shot. That's just the way it works for him. So, you know, um, that will be problematic if he keeps doing that down the line. Power is the last thing to go, but accuracy and speed and timing, those will be affected. Um, not immediately, but I think you might start seeing a few of those results depending on how much he competes and how much damage he takes within, say, a few years. Some of those things might begin to make themselves um, prevalent. I do believe that. Look, age is going to come for everybody. When, we don't know. But certainly, and McGregor is not immune to that. So I don't think that's an issue now, but it is one down the line. Hold this, McGregor, just to be sure before I start saying crazy things. Seven, well, three years might be a little bit too early. Three to five years, you might start seeing some of that stuff. So uh, he still has a lot of time left, and he's only going to get better, actually, for the next little while. So let me walk that back a little bit in the interest of um, accuracy. Uh, for the time being, he's, he's, he's quite all right. Uh, eventually, though, that will fade, whatever the timeline for that might be. Um, so that's the difference between his A and his B game. But a defensive game is very hard to beat. Guys who are very defensive in certain positions and certain circumstances, you know, they get good at being defensive. They get good at nullifying offense. They get good at at just you know, all they need is a short little amount of window to uh, make the B game go away. And I think Conor McGregor is very much that way. So, um, so we'll see how that works against Dos Anjos. But that's sort of my point: is that you know, the A game that he has doesn't need a lot of time to be highly effective. The B game, you know, he 
often winds up being very lengthy when he's sort of, you know, on his back against Chad Mendez and holding guard and, you know, working one overhook and one, maybe one hand um, to stop the nearest punch coming in or something like that. Um, so that can be problematic, but it's a five round title fight. Like you, even if he's only on his feet one minute each round, that's five minutes he has to collapse you. That's more than enough time. You know, it's more than enough time. And so that's kind of problematic. Now, if he's so badly beat up by the fifth and that doesn't happen anymore, I mean, that, that changes the equation, obviously. So, so that's simply his A and his B game. But a B, it's a lot easier to beat someone else's offense than it is someone who's really tightly defensive. You know, go back to the Manny Pacquiao-Joshua Clotty fight. Look how active and Manny Pacquiao was. And Clotty just sort of standing behind that big guard of his. Um, if you really are committed to being defensive, that's hard to break. Think about jujitsu. If you have someone in mount, and we're talking pure jujitsu here, if you have someone in mount and they're shelling up, they've got their elbows pinned to their ribs, they've got their hands up here, they've got their they're grabbing their collar. You can't do anything to them. Again, MMA, you can throw strikes; it's less of an issue. I'm just illustrating a point. If they really want to be defensively shelled, they can, and they'll you know they'll quickly open up, they'll buck you quickly, open up and do an elbow or a hip escape or, or or some kind of reversal, right? But that's why you have to leave mount sometimes. You have to go to knee on belly. Because if you go to knee on belly and you can really, sometimes, you know, guys, I was taught this, if you get a knee on belly, a lot of people get knee on belly and they teach it across hip to hip. I actually don't like it that way. I like knee on belly almost like you're wearing, um, you know, a sash from shoulder to hip, di- diagonally. You can really hurt someone that way. And then if you grab behind their collar and then their pant and then you drive your knee down, while you pick them up underneath you, you can do a lot. It opens them up. It makes them put their hand on your knee. It makes them do a lot of things. It makes them want to escape. That creates an opening. But that can be very difficult to do. That's very hard to do. You have to leave the comfort of the mount to make something like that happen. So all I'm pointing out to you is if someone is really defensively shelled in a moment that's not necessarily a place they want to be, but they're very tight and very economical, very patient with their defense, that's a very, very hard thing to break. It's not so hard necessarily to break someone's offense because – it's open and free-flowing. It's hard to you know, deal with some of that offense, certainly. But if you can get around it a little bit, if you can, you know, um, if you can time it, there's many more openings to take advantage of. Let's do uh, true-false UFC 200. Both Connor and Ronda won't fight at UFC 200. F- false. UFC 200 won't beat the pay-per-view record set by UFC 100. Since Ronda's not on it, I'm going to say true, but who knows? We will see three title fights on that card. False. You almost will probably never see three title fights on a UFC card. I'm not saying never, but probably never. John Jones will headline the card in his comeback fight against Daniel Cormier. He might headline it. I don't know if it will be his second fight of the year or not. I'll say false. If both Connor and John Jones fight on the card, Jones will headline. Probably true. Would you pick Penn against Nick Lentz? I don't know what he looks like. Probably not. Diego Sanchez, maybe. Clay Guida. Yes. Cub Swanson, no. Uriah Faber, yes, I guess. I don't really know. Uh, it's 4.30, so let's go to the Twitter machine if we can and answer some of these questions. 
Do you think Cruz did a good job with capitalizing on all the times he made TJ miss? Um, to an extent, he made TJ miss a lot, but he was never really able to effectively counter that often. Most of the time when TJ missed, he was able to... I'm sorry, I'm getting a little um, congested. He was able to get out of the way physically, but he wasn't able to turn around and crack him. And if you go back and you watch a lot of times when Cruz did land, he didn't land heavily, and there was a lot of times where even when he was landing just a little bit, he had to land on one side. TJ was being very diligent about defense on the other. TJ Dillashaw did a very, very good job in that fight. So, no, I don't know that he he didn't land as often as he needed to, but I think the real difference was everyone's like, well, he got the three takedowns. Um, you know, TJ's never been taken down before. That might be true that TJ's never been taken down before, but I think the big takeaway for me was that mixing in the wrestling is a really critical component to what is happening with Dominic Cruz. As much dancing as he's doing and movement that he's showing and as much as he's able to pick you off, eventually guys can connect on him even if they're getting, you know, um, pot-shotted here and there. And when they do, those things can accumulate. They can really land with authority. You saw some of the head kicks that TJ Dillashaw was able to do. When you shut down his wrestling, where he's only able to get three takedowns and he can barely hold on to you at the time, um, you have a much better chance of beating him. It's when he eventually overwhelms you with the wrestling and A, not only holds you in control positions for much longer, but B, then makes you desperate in your striking because of the success in the wrestling. Um, if, you're, if you're successful in getting up off the ground pretty close to immediately, you're going to stick with the striking strategy you had. If you're being taken down and controlled for long periods of time, you're going to be either A, very reserved about throwing strikes, or B, much more likely to throw caution to the wind just to land that shot you can't otherwise get across. And so takedowns are a very, very critical component to the footwork of Dominic Cruz. We always talk about his footwork and how much it means. The wrestling is an essential component for that to work as well as it does. The more you take away the takedowns, the more that style has openings and liabilities. Mighty Mouse has improved since the Dominic Cruz fight and can be him if they fight a second time, true or false. Can be him? I don't know if he can be him. McGregor, true or false? Number one, challenges for the welterweight title. I'll say false, but God, who knows? If he beats RDA, he vacates the featherweight belt. He might. With Connor tying up the featherweight title, what do you think about Frankie versus Cruz for the bantamweight title? Don't care for it right now. I mean, I'd like to see that fight, but not right now. Would you rather grapple in a tap-out shirt or lift weights in an elevation training mask? If you lift weights in an elevation training mask, you should be set on fire in front of your relatives. I saw some guy at the gym the other day. He had on a weighted vest and an uh, uh, elevation mask. And was walking up, you know, those stairmasters that they're not actually like stairs, but like it's this rotating belt of steps you actually have to get up on. And you, I'm, I, it's impossible to appreciate what I haven't seen it. The steps could not be going slower. I mean, honestly, you could like, you could, you could, you could, I, I mean, I don't know, you could marry people, operate the Hadron Collider, juggle whatever you want in the time it takes for one. Th- stare to make weight for the next one make way for the next one it was embarrassing
Right metric had Dillashaw missing 299 strikes. Is that a record for most failed striking attempts? I think it is. Good question. So was Mike Tyson's likeness signed away in perpetuity? You might have seen that Mike Tyson is one of the unlockable characters, I believe, in EA UFC 2. Um, how did they get access to his likeness rights? I suspect they paid for it. I'm trying to find that out. I'm also trying to find that out for CM Punk. It's actually quite difficult, believe it or not. Any update on UL Romero's PED case? None that I'm aware of. Will RDA succumb to Connor's attempts of making him frustrated? It sure looked that way during the presser. He might. But again, if he loses, I think it's just going to be scale more than anything else. Luke, who monitors fighters when they're suspended after a KO? No one does. Do athletes follow their suspensions? They often do not. Do you feel that Alvarez's last two wins have taught you anything new about him? Could you talk about his evolution? Um, it's a good question, you know. Beating Gilbert was a surprise. He beat the former Strikeforce lightweight champ and the former UFC lightweight champ. Eddie Alvarez has had a surprising amount of ability um, at this moment in his career, this late stage. Calling for a title shot won't really work, I don't think, because it wasn't dominant enough over Anthony Pettis, especially only being a three-round fight. But he definitely has gone a lot further than I thought he would. Um, he has had an ability to maintain being fr – I thought – the, the miles would wear on him a little bit more, and he still seems to be a little bit fresh about it. Um, so that's to his benefit. But yeah, I think there's been an upside to his UFC run that um, I always thought he would do pretty good. I wasn't sure he would do quite this good. The only problem is he's beating these guys, but just barely. Right, So he's showing that he's in this league with them, but he's not doing any kind of flash or really memorable outing. He's sort of quietly stacking these wins together, which is not what really propelled him to greatness to begin with. It was this sort of killer-be-killed style, but often much more the killer. Um, he had tremendous knuckle game. He was, you know, a good wrestler, great athlete, and he still had all those many things. But I think in an effort to really succeed at the top, he sort of boiled his, his game down to the most effective meat and potatoes version of it, and that has been quite effective for him. But it hasn't done much to... Um, launch any interest in in big fights for him, the kind where he can make a lot of money. So um, we'll see what happens with that. He's 32, so he's not completely out of that department of possibility yet. Um, so I guess what I would say is he has managed to cobble together enough skill that when he applies it in a very direct and specific way, he can beat very, very good guys. But this thing about him being like truly exciting all the time, which was something of a reputation he had, certainly in Bellator, win or lose, that has not quite followed him here. He has been a very quiet winner, um, and that has, I think, somewhat slowed his ability to, to get the kind of fights that he wants. What is the most valuable free agent for Bellator? Aljo, Bendo, Overeem, or Meathead? Um, anyone that's competed on Spike TV will be helpful to them. Anyone that's got the biggest Q rating, so probably Overeem in that regard. Um Although Overeem hasn't competed on Spike TV, but you know, Mitrione has, so that helps him a little bit. So certainly probably Overeem, but uh, anyone that has, um, you know, uh, like I mentioned before, been on Spike TV, large Q rating, uh, been in bigger fights before, fought major opposition. I would say Overeem, though.
Question, I don't know the answer to this. Where does Bellator stand with U.S. commissions by allowing Shlomenko to fight in M1 whilst banned for PED use by, by California? Great question. I do not know. I will try and follow up. Uh, the Dominator gets fan love. Mighty Mouse gets fan hate. Why the difference despite similar styles? The difference is that Cruz has a very uh, big mouth and a very aggressive, mean one. Um, Demetrius Johnson does not. I, I wonder if Cruz has benefited from the fact, you know, look, I'm not saying he has benefited by the fact that he's been injured, but being injured and having this like saga of being able to come back has made him, I think, uh, something of a sympathetic figure to many people. Um, his being a spotlighted person who has pushed technical evolution in fighting um, has, has burnished his resume as well. And then, of course, he had a rivalry with TJ Dillashaw. Um, DJ's had none of those things. He might be very, very good technically, but he hasn't been credited with any kind of real advancement in any one department. He doesn't really have a rival. And sometimes he gets a little bit candid on the mic, but never in a way that has the certain kind of punch that, that Cruz does. Let's go back to these questions here. Someone's got a question about the fighter lawsuit response. The, the Zufa responded to some of the amended complaints by the plaintiff's attorney. You can read the coverage of that by Paul Gift on Bloody Elbow. I highly recommend it. Uh, I'm not going to really um, dwell on that here. Uh, Matt Mitrione. I can't help but feel he has the worst luck in the heavyweight division. Do you feel the eye pokes alone cost him the fight with Brown? It is, for me, hard to separate the conclusion of what happened in that fight from the eye pokes, but I don't know that it's a one-to-one -one kind of scenario. Uh, Esther Lynn on the MMA Beat. I've been asking for her for a while now, but I'm really glad that we finally got a chance to listen to her. I think she deserves recognition. Uh, okay. What did you think of what she said while she was sitting in your chair? I thought she did a great job. I would also like to congratulate you for the Monday Morning Analyst. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, no, Esther was great. First female we've ever had in the panel. Lombard versus Magni. How does that fight go down? Interesting fight. Um, is Magni going to pop the jab on the outside? Because, you know, Lombard can be so flat-footed. Uh, I wonder. I wonder. Lombard's been off. Magni's been on. I, I, I don't know. I kind of like Magni's chances. If he's really diligent about staying on the outside, avoiding the takedown, and if he's got a really, really excellent jab, strong movement, he is lank, he is lanky, and that can be problematic against you know Lombard if he gets too close. But uh, I like Magny's chances there, believe it or not. My BJJ professor made a good point the other day. He said jujitsu would be more effective in MMA if tapping didn't exist. Fighters can tap to a knockout. Fighters cannot tap to a knockout, knockout blow just before it hits them. If taps didn't exist, fighters would be more fearful of the ground game, would be forced to respect a good jiu-jitsu game, and fans would not boo the ground game as much, expecting a Mir versus Silva or Rousey versus Tate type finish. This is obviously hypothetical, but I'd like to hear your opinion. Thanks. It would be a disaster. I mean, what you're talking about is if they didn't have the option to submit once they went to the ground, um, it would force the kind of desperation that would make things more competitive perhaps in certain respects. And there might be some truth to that. But the reality is eventually people would get caught. What, what would you say to someone if they get caught in an armbar and they can't tap? 
and you have to wait for the referee to get in there. The referee may, I mean, maybe they jump in early, maybe they don't. Maybe the referee doesn't jump in at all. I don't know what circumstances there would be in terms of the rules adjustment, but it would be barbaric. I mean, part of the reason why tapping exists is not simply because um, it's a helpful way to adjudicate a finish. It's that there's a humanitarian aspect to it, that we don't have to watch someone. You know, sometimes they do get choked unconscious, and sometimes bones do get broken, but more often than not, they don't. More often than not, they're allowed to tap and they live to fight another day. And that's that's a good thing that allows continuity, that allows things to be healthy. So tapping has a number of benefits that far outweigh the marginal gains that would be had by creating panic and extreme uh, scrambling if tapping didn't exist. People asking lots of questions about Eric Del Fierro and what his contributions would be. I think the key takeaway is when you see things like John Cavanaugh McGregor, when you see things like Eric Del Fierro, Dominic Cruz, when you see things like, you know, pick anyone, uh, Winkle John Holm. You know, what's amazing about some camps is some camps, uh, coaches are really good where they can produce everyone's greatness at scale. You know, they can produce 20 great fighters who really go really far and they can have these super camps. Um, but the truth is, a lot of this time, those guys have you know additional coaching staff, guys like Brandon Gibson, for example. And more than that, I think we, the most common scenario is that you get a coach who can be really good with a lot of people, but they can be very special with one or two people. And I think that's a much more common scenario. People are like, well, why doesn't John Kavanaugh have more than just Conor McGregor, who's kicking ass? Well, because A, Conor McGregor is very special, but B, you know, it's he can only take his talent so far. You know, there's there's a limit to that, and. Um, and also that there might be a, some kind of special bond between coach and student there that, you know, brings out the best in both of them that he simply can't get out of someone else, even if he puts in maximum amount of effort. So you have to sort of be prepared for that kind of reality as well. Let's see what we got here. Why can't we use the ultimate fighter as a lab for a new scoring system? You can keep the scoring system as it is, but on the sidelines, pay additional judges to use a different scoring system and then collect the data. This argument about we have to replace things on these shows, we have to replace things on any show. You don't have to replace anything. Just pay extra judges to take their time on a Friday or Saturday to judge things and just they're they do not they have no official function other than you just want to see what the difference looks like in the end. Someone says thanks for all the podcasts. I say thank you for watching. We're almost at a time. Let me get one more here, and then we will go. Okay, we'll do this one. The scoring in MMA favors takedowns in wrestling too highly. You are awarded for a takedown even if you land zero punches, and the person gets up five seconds later, and that person gets nothing for neutralizing you and getting back to their feet. In the same way that submission attempts are awarded, but not submission defense. What do you think about a system where a takedown isn't awarded or considered neutral until the person is on the ground for 15 to 30 seconds? I think it's ridiculous. Takedowns do count. You want to keep a fight at a certain type of phase, which has its own risks and its own rewards, but that's the one you want. And that puts you out of that, even if temporarily, which affects your ability to then operate in that space like you want. That has a tremendous effect. People were talking about, well, Dominic Cruz got TJ down three times. He didn't land a single punch. So what? So what? First of all, in a super 
tight, razor close fight. You have to look to the things that ha- you know that matter, and that's punches that land, that's punches that don't land, that's takedowns that land. I don't think that should decide the fight necessarily, but they should have an impact. As you saw in the Alvarez fight, I'm not even talking about the takedown uh, the attempts that stalled against the cage. I'm talking about the ones that succeeded, where he finally got him down. That altered his game. It has a tremendous amount of impact. Take, getting a takedown is hard to do. Holding this someone on the ground for 30 seconds is an insane amount of time to keep someone down, especially a trained elite mixed martial arts fighter. Um, you should get a lot of points, you know, for something of, of that, you know, with I'm sure a few circumstances notwithstanding. Um, you know, don't want to see anyone stalling or anything like that, but, you know, only counting a takedown if you land a tremendous shot in terms of a punch or you hold them there for an inordinate amount of time to me is absurd. Um, you know, you don't want to give them too much points, but if if you, I'm changing the phase of the game that you want to be in uh, and I'm affecting your ability to fight in your A game as a consequence, yeah, those count a lot. Those certainly have a, a, a significant value. Okay, we have to go. So let's do this. If you have an additional question, I will take them. You can email me at luke.thomas at espionation.com. Thank you so much for watching today. I really appreciate it. We're on iTunes, uh, itunes.com slash promotional malpractice. Give us a good review over there. And then uh, follow me on Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Stay tuned. Plenty more photos, videos coming your way from today's UFC 197 presser and all that good stuff. Until next time, stay frosty.